Welcome to the Calvary Church Podcast. We're glad that you are here and that you can be a part of a recent service at TCC. So let's join the service, which is already underway, and listen to the message. So anyway, the, uh, the person that we're going to look at tonight is the disciple Andrew. Now, in general, I really love studying the disciples because as you study their lives, you begin to pick up on the fact that there really isn't anything extraordinary about these men. And each of them have different personalities. They have their own strengths and weaknesses. But in general, uh, they were all pretty ordinary people, which I find encouraging if Jesus could use 12 ordinary guys to, you know, start his church, then I think there's a little bit of hope for me. Uh, so as we start tonight, I want to take a quick poll here at the beginning. And if someone were to ask you, who is your favorite of the 12 disciples? If your answer would honestly be Andrew, would you raise your hand for just a moment? Okay, this is perfect. If you're watching online, no one raised their hand. Uh, Well, this is perfect because my hope for tonight is that by the end of this lesson on Andrew, he would uh, bump up a couple rankings in your list. Uh, Because I think that as you begin to look at his life, there are some great lessons that we can take away and hopefully draw some application to our lives today. So, all right, starting at the beginning, uh, the name Andrew comes from the Greek language, and its meaning is strong and manly. So if you're here tonight and your name is Andrew, well, there you go. You are strong and manly. Uh, And throughout Scripture, Andrew is mentioned 13 times by name. Now, four of those times, he is being listed as part of the entire group of disciples. And then in another five verses out of those 13, He's being listed in passing as kind of just a part of a smaller group of people. So there's really only three passages in Scripture where Andrew is mentioned by name uh, and is like the main focus of what's going on. Now, uh, that can make for a challenging character study, but as you look at these three passages, I think that we can begin to put a picture together about who Andrew was, and so that's what we're going to do here tonight. So the first passage we're going to look at is John chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 29. Now, uh, to give some context here about where verse 29 picks up, we've just been introduced to John the Baptist, and we learn that he's been uh, ministering in the wilderness, baptizing people, and telling them that the Messiah is coming. Okay, and word begins to spread pretty quickly about this man living in the wilderness, proclaiming that Jesus is on his way. And so the Jews actually go and send some priests and some Levites from, from Jerusalem to go out and uh, question John the Baptist about, you know, who he was and, and what he's doing. So if you, if you read that exchange, he tells them, look, I, I mean, I'm not the Christ. And they say, well, who are you? Are you Elias? Are you a prophet? Like, who are you? Because we've got to go back to Jerusalem and give an account for what's going on here. And John the Baptist, is, he just says, look, I'm, I'm a man out here yelling in the wilderness, and I'm just letting you know that Jesus is coming. And in fact, you better get ready because he's, uh, he's actually already here. You just haven't met him yet. So right after this exchange is where we pick up in verse 29. And it says, the next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him 
and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Spirit. And I saw him bear record that this is the Son of God. Okay, so John sees Jesus, and he lets everyone know that this is the person that he's been talking about. And he gives an explanation about, you know, how he knows this Jesus, that he was given a vision. He would see the Spirit uh, descend from heaven and rest on him. Uh, so in verse 35, again, the next day after John stood, and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is being interpreted master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and, uh, they came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. All right, so that's a big passage. Um, but this is the first time in Scripture where we see Andrew mentioned and actually acting on his own as a main part of the story. So what can we learn about Andrew from this passage? Well, to start, we know that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. And this gives us a little bit of insight into Andrew because it shows that Andrew was spiritually sensitive. He was hungry for the things of God, and he was actively seeking out the coming Messiah because that's what John the Baptist's main message was. There's one coming after me whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. Before Jesus was even on the scene and called Andrew to follow him, Andrew was actively seeking out Jesus. And this wasn't just a casual thing where, you know, after work once a week, Andrew would take a short little walk out of the town and meet up with John the Baptist. In John 1, 28, it tells us that John the Baptist's ministry took place in an area called Bethabara beyond Jordan. And uh, <clears throat> if you can throw that map up on the screen, I, I have a map here of Galilee. It might be a little hard to see, but... Uh, on the very right of the map is the Sea of Galilee, and uh, at the very top point of that sea, that is uh, Bethsaida, and that's the area where Andrew, Peter, and actually Philip were all from. And eventually, Andrew and Peter ended up moving from Bethsaida to Capernaum, which is the very next dot over to the left. And uh, they moved there because they were fishermen. They worked together. And Capernaum was a much better location for their business. It, it had a higher population. It was more of a major city rather than a small town. So Capernaum is where Andrew was, uh, where he was located during his time as a disciple of John the Baptist. Now, if you look all the way down to the very bottom right of that map, you'll find another dot that represents Bethabara, where John the Baptist's ministry was taking place. And the distance between Capernaum, where Andrew lived, and Bethabara, 
is over 90 miles. And that's roughly the distance between this church and Columbus, Ohio. So for Andrew to go and visit John the Baptist, it was a pretty significant trip that he was making. And I'm not sure uh, how many PTO days they had back then, but I think it's safe to say Andrew had to step away from his day job every once in a while to go and hear John the Baptist teach and spend enough time with him to be called a disciple of John the Baptist. So uh, Andrew was pretty serious about seeking out the coming Messiah, and this is something special about Andrew, because there was only one other of the 12 disciples that um, were a disciple of John the Baptist. So Andrew was one of the, uh, the OGs. He was following Jesus before it was cool. <clears throat> now, uh, the other thing here that's important to take note of is what Andrew did after he met Jesus. So in verse 39, we see that Andrew and the other disciple, who many think or believe is the disciple John, not to be confused with John the Baptist himself, but that they went and spent the day with Jesus wherever he was staying at the time and uh, got to talk to him for a little bit. And man, what I would give to be able to sit in on that conversation. I mean, can you imagine you're waiting for the day that Jesus is going to show up and then one day he just walks up and is like, yeah, just uh, come on over to the house. You know, we'll, we'll grill out, cook up some wings, just talk. You can ask me anything you want to. Uh, that might have been an amazing afternoon for Andrew and John, to say the least. Uh, but after that was over, verse 41 says that Andrew first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, we found the Messiah which is being interpreted the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. The first thing that Andrew did after he had an encounter with Jesus was he went and brought someone else to have an encounter with Jesus. And this is important because as we look at the other two times that Andrew is mentioned in the Bible, we're going to start to see a trend about Andrew. And before we move on to the second passage where Andrew's mentioned, there is one final thing that I find interesting here. Uh, about Andrew bringing his brother to meet Jesus. Now, I did not grow up with a brother. I grew up with two amazing sisters that I would not trade for anything, but I did grow up with people that had brothers, and there is one thing that always remained consistent across the board, and that is there was always a sense of competition between the brothers. And I'm purposely avoiding eye contact of anyone here that are brothers, uh, now, the Bible doesn't say Andrew's brother, Simon Peter, was a disciple of John the Baptist. And I don't know why that is. I don't know why. Si uh, I don't know if Andrew and Peter just had an agreement that maybe Peter was going to hold down the fishing business while Andrew went and met with John. Or maybe Peter just wasn't interested at the time. <clears throat> but it does seem to me that out of the two of them, and this is just my own observation and hypothesis, but... It does seem that Andrew's personality might have been more on the inquisitive, introspective, reserved side of things. We know that Peter was definitely not a reserved individual. There's times where he was the spokesman for the disciples and had the, tend the tendency to either say or do something kind of off the cuff at times. Uh, so Peter definitely seems like the more outgoing brother between the two of them and probably had a, a little bit more of a dominating personality. And Andrew would have known this, right? 
growing up with his brother, Angie would have known that Peter's personality could overshadow his own and take the spotlight. But we don't really see that come into play here. We don't see any hesitation by Andrew to go and bring his brother to Jesus. We don't see any selfishness to, you know, get in with Jesus before he brought his brother into the picture. There's no notion that Andrew had a moment of pride or that he let that brotherly competition get in the way. Scripture just says that the first thing Andrew did was go and get his brother. Okay, so tuck that away in your short-term memory for just a moment. Uh, The second time that we see Andrew acting on his own in Scripture is a few chapters later in John 6. So to set the stage here in chapter 5, Jesus heals the man that's sitting at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, Scripture says that periodically an angel would come down and trouble the waters in that pool. And then the first one that would enter the pool, uh, they would be healed. Well, this man was sitting there beside that pool for, the Bible says, 38 years because he was never able to make it in there before someone else got in, which is pretty sad. Uh, So Jesus, when he comes by, he heals this man. And when the Jews find out that Jesus did this, well, they just get all out of sorts because Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. And so they confront him about this. And they demand a reason for why Jesus violated their law and healed this person on the Sabbath. Um, And so Jesus replies, well, because my father works on the Sabbath, I work on the Sabbath. And then this just completely sends him over the edge because not only did Jesus heal someone on the Sabbath, the day of rest, but now he has the audacity to put himself on the same level as God, saying that God was his father. So Jesus spends basically 28 verses trying to get them to understand, you know, who he is and why it was okay for, he, for him to heal this man. Uh, and after this exchange is where we pick up in John 6 and verse 1. It says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into the mountain where he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. And when Jesus lifted up his eyes, he saw a great company come unto them. And he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread, that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Well, two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them could have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here, which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but... What are they among so many? And Jesus said, make the, make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he, distribu- he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. All right, so this is the second time we see Andrew, and a crowd of people have gathered around Jesus, and the disciples begin to worry about how they're going to feed this large crowd. It's getting pretty late in the day, and of course it's on the Sabbath, so Chick-fil-A was definitely out of the equation. Uh, And in this moment, Jesus thought that it was the perfect time to give Philip a performance evaluation. And so he asked them, or he asked Philip, well, Philip, how are we going to feed these people? And Philip, 
Well, God loved Philip. He, uh, he just immediately fails the test. And in the book, 12 Ordinary Men by John MacArthur, which is actually a required reading book for Purpose Institute, so you can get ahead of the game there. But his chapter on Philip, he labels the bean counter because Philip was a logistics man. His strength was in planning and administration, which, as we see here, was not always to his benefit. Uh, But we see Philip take a quick mental inventory of the situation. He knew that um, they kind of had on hand about 200 uh, penny worth, or some translations say denarii, which was about a single day's worth of pay. So 200 penny worth would have been about eight months worth of pay for the average worker back then. Now, eight months worth of pay, I mean, that's not really that small of an amount of money, which shows you just how big this crowd must have been that had followed Jesus. And if you read Matthew's uh, account of the situation, Philip actually wasn't alone in his thinking that there really wasn't much they could do for these people for food. Matthew records in chapter 14, verse 15, that the disciples told Jesus, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But as we read in John, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. So he challenged the disciples and pushed back on their suggestion to send the crowd away. And in verse 16, he tells them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And so seeing this epic failure of Philip and the collective lack of faith by his fellow disciples, our boy Andrew steps up to the plate and tries to salvage the situation. And so what do we see Andrew do here? Well, we see him bring someone to Jesus, a small lad, a boy that had just five measly barley loaves and two fishes. And we can see that Andrew is having an internal conflict about whether he should even open his mouth to say something and bring this boy to Jesus because, like he said, there's a lad here, but what are, what are these loaves and what are these fish for so many people? So Andrew didn't exactly hit a home run here, but he at least hit a double. And, I mean, after witnessing Philip's failure, I'm sure that he didn't want to be the next in line. Uh, but Andrew had been around Jesus long enough to know that if he could just bring this boy to him, It didn't matter how small or how insignificant his gift was that Jesus could make a way. And so Andrew did what Andrew did best. He brought that lad to Jesus, which resulted in one of the most notable miracles in the New Testament. In fact, that miracle had such an impact on those that were present that it's the only one recorded in all four gospel accounts. Andrew's decision to bring that boy to Jesus blessed those that were in the crowd that day, They all got to eat until their heart was content. It blessed Andrew. It was no doubt a defining moment on his own journey of faith. And it surely blessed that boy at such a young age to see a miracle like that happen and to have played such an active role in it. All right, in the third and final time that we see Andrew mentioned on his own in the Bible is in John chapter 12. So at this point, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead And there was a dinner or a feast that was put together to celebrate. And this is the same dinner where Mary pours out that expensive ointment on Jesus' feet, and then Judas gets upset about it. Uh, But during this dinner, word began to get to spread that Jesus and Lazarus were both there. 
And so a lot of people ended up coming uh, to this feast to see them. And this is where we pick up in John 12, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip. All right, here we go, Philip. Your redemption draweth nigh. You didn't do too well during your last performance evaluation. So let's see if we can turn things around here. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So what does Philip do? Well, in verse 22, Philip goes and gets Andrew. And then Philip and Andrew bring him to Jesus. Now, I do feel a little sorry for Philip here because apparently John has no issue with throwing him under the bus in his retelling of these stories. Uh, And I'm not sure why these Greeks sought out Philip specifically. Some believe that it could be due to Philip having a Greek name, and so maybe they felt he would be the best contact for them to to get in. Or uh, Others believe that maybe these Greeks were aware that Philip was kind of the administrator or the logistics guy of the group and Maybe he could arrange a meeting for them to meet Jesus. But whatever the reasoning, Philip was not up to the task that day of introducing these Greeks to Jesus. We know that Philip was a process guy, like John MacArthur labeled him, the bean counter. Uh, He liked to have rules for how things should be done. And it's possible that this situation just kind of caught him off guard a little bit. And he wasn't really sure of the protocol of how to introduce these Greeks to Jesus. But Despite his lack of certainty in this moment, there was one thing that Philip was certain about, that if he would just take these people to Andrew, Andrew could definitely go and introduce them to Jesus, because that is who Andrew was. He was the guy that brought people to Jesus. And one commentator said that the difference between Philip not being able to introduce this group to Jesus and Andrew being able to introduce them to Jesus comes down to how much time they each spent with Jesus in their own personal relationship with him. See, Andrew was part of the inner circle of disciples that included him, his brother, Peter, and James. And as a result of being in the circle, Andrew probably spent more time with Jesus than Philip did. So when Philip was tasked with introducing these Greeks to Jesus, he began to question where he stood in his relationship with them. Did he have the authority to bring someone to meet Jesus? Was there a protocol that he needed to follow? What if Jesus wasn't in the mood to meet people that day? If it turned into an awkward situation, was that going to hurt his own standing or reputation? But we don't see Andrew wrestle with these same insecurities. Andrew knew exactly where he stood with Jesus, and he knew that he had the authority to bring people to him because he had a daily relationship with him. All right, and that actually brings us to our app time for tonight. So, tonight's question is, who do you relate to the most between Andrew, Philip, and the Greeks, and why? Maybe you've been in a situation where you had the chance to help someone in their walk with the Lord like Andrew did, Or maybe like Philip, you were able to point them in the right direction to someone that could speak into their lives. Or maybe there was a time where you were like the Greeks and someone helped you have an interaction with the Lord. So let's take a few moments here, uh, discuss this with someone around you, and we will continue here shortly. 
All right. Well, hopefully you had a chance to share your story with someone, and hopefully they were able to share their story with you too. Uh, But as we kind of wind down tonight, as we conclude, I'd like to try and wrap up this lesson on Andrew by making an application to our lives today. So tonight we've talked a lot about how Andrew's ministry was centered around him bringing people to Jesus. But what's interesting is that throughout his entire life, people had trouble seeing Andrew as his own person with his own calling. Andrew was often overlooked and fell into the background of the stories. His brother's outspoken personality often overshadowed his own. And we see Andrew's value being tied to the fact that he was the brother of Peter. If you look at the 13 times that Andrew was mentioned in the Bible, half of those verses refer to Andrew as being the brother of Peter. Uh, In fact, if you read Luke's account of when Jesus showed up and called Andrew and Peter to follow him, Luke doesn't even mention Andrew. He just completely leaves them out of the story. Uh, But there is one, or but there is not a single moment recorded in Scripture where this affected Andrew's spirit. And it would have been understandable if Andrew wrestled with, let's say, bitterness because he was always lumped together with his brother. We would have understood and maybe even empathized with Andrew, as scripture had mentioned a time where he got angry with his brother over always taking the spotlight, but we never see that happen. And while he was often tucked away in the background, his calling and gifting was perhaps one of the most important of, the, of all 12 disciples, because Andrew saw value in the individual. He recognized how important a single person was to the Lord, and his ministry served one purpose— to bring people to a place where they could have an encounter with Jesus. He didn't have to be recognized as some prolific speaker. He didn't have to receive credit for laying hands on someone and seeing them healed. Andrew understood that what really matters is just bringing people to a place where they can be in the presence of the Lord. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit swept through that upper room, And those that were there began to speak with other tongues. A crowd formed outside of that building and began to ask what was going on. And the crowd consisted of several nationalities that day. And scripture says they all heard words coming from that upper room in their own language. They thought that those in the upper room were drunk on wine. So one of the disciples stood up and began to explain to that crowd what had just taken place. Acts 2.14 says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing as but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit Upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so Peter, he continues this discourse over the next 14 verses, explaining 
that what they had just witnessed was the Spirit of God. And in verse 37, after Peter finished speaking, it says that the crowd that day was pricked in their hearts. And so they asked Peter, what is it that they should do? And then Peter replied with the words of Acts 2.38, which I'm sure most of us know by heart, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Words that have become a cornerstone to apostolic doctrine. Peter's name is the one that's marked down in Scripture and credited with speaking those famous words of instruction. Instructions that are still being followed 2,000 years later. But what I find powerful about this passage is the beginning of verse 14. It says, Peter, standing with the eleven, meaning the other disciples. So while Peter spoke to the crowd that day, guess who was once again standing in Peter's shadow? His brother, Andrew. And I wonder what kind of emotions Andrew felt on that day as he watched his brother speak to that crowd. If I had to guess, there was no bitterness, no anger, no envy or jealousy. If I had to guess, his heart was filled with joy that day to see his brother, whom he introduced to Jesus just a few years earlier, now standing in front of a crowd, preaching and teaching and giving instructions that would still be followed by the church 2,000 years later. This world needs more Andrews. Cincinnati, Springdale, the Calvary Church needs more Andrews. We need Andrews who see the value of the first-time guest on a Sunday morning. We need Andrews who see the value in people who come to celebrate recovery for hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And we need Andrews who see the value of those seeking the Lord on a Sunday morning or Wednesday evening and can volunteer their time to help our ministry teams. As I mentioned earlier tonight, I have been blessed to call Calvary my home for my entire life. And some of the most vivid memories I have growing up in this church is walking in and seeing the plaque above the sanctuary doors that read, Everyone a Minister. And if I'm being honest, I didn't really always understand what that meant at such a young age. But what I realize now is that everyone is a minister because ministry is seeing value in people. And what I'm learning is that as you start looking through that lens and seeing how much a single person means to the Lord, that will become a guiding light in your life. Because if I'm being honest, on the spectrum of extrovert to introvert, I lean pretty heavy on that introvert side. And there are times where it is difficult for me to step out, introduce myself to a first-time guest, or to to reach out and to give someone an encouraging word or to walk across the sanctuary during a service to pray for someone. But if you will allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life and to show you the value of people, it will empower you to overcome those fears, those anxieties, and it will lead you to be a blessing to those around you. And when that begins to help to happen, well, you better buckle your seatbelt because you will find yourself ministering in situations that you would have never walked into on your own. I want to pray for you tonight. Lord, we thank you tonight for this incredible example that we find in the life of Andrew. We ask that you would help us to see people, Lord, how you see people. 
Help us to see the value that just a single person has to you and your kingdom. Lord, we thank you, God, for what you are doing in this church, Lord, and what you're doing through this church in the city of Cincinnati. Pray that you would help us to take what we feel tonight and apply this to our lives, on our jobs, on our campuses, in our neighborhoods. Lord, help us to be like Andrew and be ready to bring people to a place where their life can be changed by you. Lord, we love you and we thank you, God, for your blessings over our lives. And we ask these things in your name, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.